Hello, welcome to episode number five of the Arts and Traveller podcast. And with me today is comedian and composer and Geordie, Mr. Richard Morton. Uh, yeah, all those things. Thank you, Chris. Uh, and in the right order. I'm very well, thank you. And thank you for having me on your show. No problem at all. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, I remember seeing you back at the Fun House, I believe it was, in Barton's PLC. Yeah. Um, closing the show with an amazing set. You're a musical comedian but what for you came first was it music or comedy yeah it was the music I started out as a musician and trying to be a serious musician but I used to do uh, gigs in little clubs and pubs and stuff in London uh, and I just used to lark around or I'd just sort of tell little stories or jokes in between the songs and the act where I was in the Panic Brothers in the in the mid uh, mid 80s was actually a serious music act but the, the, the comedy added to the sort of dimension of it, the dynamics, and people would say, oh, you're a funny guy, Rich. We should get um, gigs in comedy clubs. And at that time in the 80s in London, it was kind of the cabaret circuit more than the comedy circuit. So you could do gigs in clubs with proper stand-ups and then have a music act as well, who didn't have to be wildly funny, but just a few witty songs. So we got those gigs. And then the more laughs you get, as you know, Chris, once you're on stage, the more addictive it becomes. So I started writing comedy songs and like proper little jokes in between um, the, uh, the songs as well. Uh, and that would make a, a completely different dynamic and set for the Panic Brothers. Uh, and we became a comedy act by default. That's incredible. So I remember uh, when I was at the Fringe um, in August, um, you put a picture on Facebook uh, from 1994 and it was a poster of your fringe experience, and the headline, I believe it was, or the tagline was uh, the Northeast answer to Biddy Connolly. Was that the Musical Association? Or? Oh, I think that was the um, agency, to be honest with you, Chris, because <laughs> that was a bit embarrassing, because it, it was too much of a quote, I thought, and I think somebody said it in that sort of way that, you know, if you're from a certain place and you've got a guitar and you've, and you've got a sort of a cheeky, I don't know, um, uh, whatever it is, maybe a regional kind of a comic act, that that was an example you could say, oh, it's like a Billy Connolly or whatever. So, uh, you know, Billy Connolly is a, a comedy god, so I was a bit embarrassed by that. But of course, you know, agents and promoters are like, like whack that on the poster and we'll see how many people we get in. So I would never, ever pretend to be in that sort of league. Do you remember your experience of The Fringe in 94? Do you remember how that was? I do, because that was the first um, solo show I did, the first one-hour show. And before then, I'd been up to Edinburgh with the Panic Brothers from the late 80s, from 86. Uh, and we did little spots in clubs and the late and live show when it was very, very new. And then did our own one-hour show. And we sort of progressed to the Pleasance Cabaret Bar to do a one-hour show in 89. And then when the Panic split up that year, um, I, I missed Edinburgh in 90 because I didn't have an hour. And then I wrote, you know, an hour, but I didn't feel fully confident to do it. So I waited till 94. Uh, and in 92 and 93, I did shows with Joe Brands and Jenny Lacote and Fred McCauley and Lynn Ferguson as a sort of a group thing. Uh, I put them all together in one group, by the way, but there was, uh, there were actually separate shows. And then by 94, I thought, right, I've got an hour that I can do. Because I didn't kind of want to go out there too quickly so I think once you've gone to Edinburgh and everyone knows you then it's you've set your stall out and I think some acts might try and get there too quickly or you know kind of jump the gun a bit so 94 was great uh, and it was my kind of breakthrough year in a way that people went oh yeah he's not just that one half of the Panic Brothers guy anymore he's like you know a proper comic you've made an identity for yourself off the back of I'd like to think so, but yeah, even the Billy Connolly poster sort of set it back a bit. <laughs> but um, yeah, but all those um, Edinburgh runs, they kind of blur a little bit, but because that was the first one in the Wildman Room in the Assemblies, I don't think it's there anymore, that venue, by the way. Um, it was uh, a great run for me, so I was very pleased. 
That's amazing. So um, you've been a comedian now for what, coming up to 25, 30? Yeah, it's actually, yeah, it's 30 now. So end of 89, early 90, I started, yeah. And you still get the same buzz you did when you first stepped on stage? I do. And, and people say, Rich, I, you know, are you mad or something? You, you know, why haven't you retired by now? Or, why, you know, why haven't you hung up your microphone and your, and your plectrums? It's because I still love to entertain. And, and when you get out there, um, for so many gigs I do now, because I'm not famous per se, it's like audiences going, well, who's this guy? And you've got to start from scratch. So every gig, in a way, is like an expositional thing where you start from the point of thinking they don't know who you are and you must establish yourself to the end of your set when you think, oh, hopefully, uh, you know, I've made them all laugh. So that alone it keeps you going because it's, it's different every night. And, and as you know, you do some jokes on, on one night that go better than others and then vice versa and some things you say work better and it's never a sort of foregone conclusion so I never think of it as a sort of uh, a routine or an act that I'm just kind of trolling out there because you know I always try and think of it as something new uh, for each time and it, and it keeps the excitement going. Definitely yeah that's a good way to think of it and uh, having seen your act it's obviously high energy as well. Oh thanks <laughs> <laughs> yeah because I'm, I'm 29 now Chris and I'm getting I'm slowing down a bit. You're lucky this is audio only. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Uh, I'm practicing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've got a, a couple of gigs myself lined up. Um, okay, yes. Very, very far away from here. Mm -hmm. um, would you advise actually going further out of uh, sort of where you live or where you're from when you first start out or do you sort of go with the home crowd feel? Yeah, I think that's a good idea to go as far as you can in a way because firstly, um, so when I became solo in 1990 I, I tried to avoid all the really big clubs for a while like the comedy store and places because I didn't feel ready for it and secondly I, I didn't want to go back to Newcastle and do shows for the same reason as you know when they say a prophet's uh, seldom you know what's that phrase in his own land you know yeah like, profit made I was going to say because didn't make any money in those days um, but you know what I'm saying it's like when you're from a place it's like oh he's just from around the corner we don't you know we want to see somebody from yeah London I, I whatever that. so I think when you can actually go and cut your teeth in places and then come back to wherever it is you want to be that's pretty good and the same applies to Edinburgh I didn't want to go there too soon I wanted to make sure I had a decent amount of material I suppose you have to ready for an hour show as well. Yeah, I mean it's hard enough getting your first 10 and 20 together and also once you've got your first 20 together it, it's very tempting to keep it and so uh, and as you know new material is the key for acts and I, you know I'm saying this because I don't do enough new material for myself but I try my hardest to keep putting new stuff in but when I started my turnover was much greater because as soon as you've established yourself a little bit and people say oh yeah come back in you know a month or two months or three months you've got to try and add something new and if I played at places like the comedy store I'd always try and add some even if it was just one joke from the previous show that I'd done there just so that people think oh yeah you're still adding and it is a really good thing when you're starting out because it, it helps you as a comic and it helps your act and it helps your reputation so new material is really key You've been quite instrumental in writing jokes for other comedians, uh, reading yeah, through your I've bio. Done, I've done, oh, thank you. I've done a few. When um, when I started out, the, one of the luckiest breaks I got was at the Comedy Store in 1991. I was asked to do the Cutting Edge show, which is still going today on a Tuesday. It's amazing. Uh, and it was properly topical in those days. You had to write every week. And I was on with Mark Thomas, uh, Nick Revel, uh, Kevin Day, Eddie Izzard, uh, Joe Brand. You know, they're all top comics. And, and they were way ahead of me because I was just the guy basically with the guitar. That's how I got that gig. They wanted somebody musical on the show every week. And I kind of learned how to write jokes on a, on a very quick basis because I was dropped in the deep end with them. And so I quickly thought, all oh, right, I've got to write between this Tuesday and next Tuesday. I need new stuff. And you had to. 
So it made me a much quicker and better writer. And, and also by about 93, I had reams of material. So in a slightly, when I was saying about the 94 show, that's why, because I had a lot of material to do. Oh, okay. Uh, and I left that show at the same time and I slightly took my foot off the pedal, I have to say. But it um, established my reputation, luckily, with other acts that I was working with, like Jack D. And he just said, oh, Rich, come and write for me. So he got me a gig on his TV show in uh, 97, 98 on ITV. And again, it was a topical thing. So you had to come up with like 10 good jokes every week, which was a bit of a do. Because I mean, deadline day was like Thursday. So by Wednesday night, I was tearing my hair out. Because it's like school. And you had yeah. to go in there with, a, you know, no, it wasn't before, it was before your iPhones and stuff, with a sheet of paper yeah. and like one to 10 and, and jokes. And Jack, do you go, yeah, yeah, no, 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 yeah, no. And then even then on the show, you might even get, get one or two of your gags actually, you know, broadcast live. Because he had about five writers working for him. I was going to say we would have had a number of people presumably doing yeah, that, so otherwise you're relying on sort of... Oh yeah, and better ones than me. And I remember some of the writers then just amazing, they're like machines, and they would like just knock out these top gags. And I'd be like, you know, wandering around my flat for a day going, right, it starts with this bit, and then this is the middle bit, and then, and then these guys were just like da 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 So it's a, it's a good discipline as well to make yourself right. Do you work from the perspective of what's funny and then kind of build around it to create a joke? Yeah, sort of. It's like, or if you've got a subject that you know you want to write about, and, so, and I think it's important to write about things that you're emotionally investing something in. I think it's, it's, it's a real talent if you can write a joke off the top of your head about anything and it's funny. They're comedy writers, they can do that. But I think for stand-ups, a lot of the time, because you're out there doing it every night and you've got to you know, repeat the lines, you've have, I think you have to feel involved in it. And I think audiences know the things you actually believe in and things you really want to talk about, as opposed to stuff you're just saying to get a laugh so it's finding those subjects that you you have to you know stick with and so for a lot of comics when you start out it's where you're from or your upbringing stuff because you know you're on safe ground you know what you're doing but past that point you have to find subjects that enthuse you and you think will also enthuse the audience and I think it's important for someone like me because I've been going so long that when I walk out there they're not going to go, no, oh, this guy's got nothing relevant to me. So even when I'm playing to, you know, uh, audiences where people are like half my age now, I've got to think, right, I've got to have stuff to keep them, you know, involved. So I try and deal with subjects that everyone's interested in and that I'm interested in talking about as well. It's a lot easier, isn't it? I, I find that when I'm writing as well, um, that if a subject is, you know, um, pers not personable to me or if it's... Uh recognizable to me then it's a lot easier to write around that joke but do you find that I found this recently actually I had to confirm a joke um, basically it was a duplicated joke by complete accident mm. pure word association I won't give away the joke mm. but I had to check with a very famous uh, one-liner okay. comedian on the mid on the Midland circuit yeah and it just happened to be a joke that he'd written yeah but completely the other way around it yeah. was really strange it was that's for someone who's literally starting you know in basic um, it's, it's easily done, Chris, and, and easier than you would think. Because I think, again, I can give you an example. When I wrote on the Jack D show, if Jack, if there was a story in the news that Jack wanted to cover, and he'd say, right, this is the story, and it was like something in the newspaper, something on the news, and he gave it to five writers, I guarantee if five writers write five jokes each, a lot of them will be duplicated, duplicated on the same subject, because that's the subject. And also, there's a, a finite amount of jokes and an amount of ways to approach a joke. So if, if, if we picked a subject now, we, we'd know exactly where the, we think that joke's going to be. You know, if you go for a Boris Johnson thing, you think, right, I know where I think these punchlines will be. So probably 
a, a room full of comics will duplicate without any problem because that's where we see the funniness. And, and I think when you get out on the circuit and people say, oh, you've got a joke similar to somebody else's, it's a, it's a bit of a shocker. And I don't think anyone tries to go out there and nick jokes, but if you've got a joke that's similar, it's, I, I, I'd, I'd say to whoever the comic is, I've got this line, or, or I'd contact them and say, is that all right with you? And I've actually done gigs sometimes when it's been a topical thing and I've got a joke and I've gone in and there's somebody on stage doing what I, well, I think, oh, they've done my joke now. But it's because it's, you know, sometimes it's we go for an obvious line. It's only if something's completely obscure and contrived and somebody's got it word for word that you go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. So sadly, as you'll know, naming no names, that has happened. But it's, um, it's usually the case that, yeah, it's like that old great minds think alike adage that you'll come up with a joke same as a, another comic. Definitely, because obviously the funny, pe the funny part of the joke is, you know, what people are working around, and yes. naturally you're going to get to that destination. Yes. Regardless. Yes. Um, to be fair to the, the comic that um, had written the joke, he was really good about it, and he actually said to me, "Look, you can use it in your format because it was slightly different." Um, so there's kind of like a camaraderie almost amongst yeah. comics. It's very easy, I guess, to yes. well, from the outset to look at it as if people would be defensive about it. And, you know, but it's, it's yeah. lovely to see that people actually are willing no, to help No, that's you out. great, and I think whoever that is, a top name, is probably uh, a top name for that very reason. That you know, they're, they're professional about the whole thing, and and also, if there's new acts coming through, and they've and they've obviously got material that they've taken from you know established acts, it's quickly spotted, and, and someone will tap them on the shoulder and just say, you know, that's a Lee Evans gag, or that's a Jack D gag, or something. And sometimes they don't even realise they've done it. It's just thinking, oh, this is funny. And then, and I think that can happen to all of us. You can be walking along going, oh, I've got a great idea for a joke. And then you get home and you go, oh, that's from a video I was watching, a DVD of Eddie Izzard or something. And you, and you just think, I'm glad I've stopped myself before I get out there. But yeah, usually it's a case of sort of, you know, uh, duplicating something with uh, good intent. So speaking of Mr. Evans, you've uh, you performed with him, I believe, was it the 98 uh, Live in Scotland show? In a Oh, I did absolutely loads, Chris. Um, I met Lee Evans back in the late 80s when he was still a kid and he was on like well, the old-fashioned club circuit from up north because his dad was and he, and he had this very odd act with kind of props and things in a real oddball act, very funny but kind of really crazy. And he said, I want to get into what was then the alternative comedy thing. Uh, and there was, it was like chalk and cheese. It's like the old circuit was, you know, guys in frilly shirts and bow ties saying, two blokes walking to pub and, you know, English, Scots and Irishmen. And then the alternative was like Ben Elton talking about Mrs. Thatch and, you know, and, and the two worlds were quite separate. And Lee very quickly found himself on the sort of wrong side of the tracks, as it were. And he was just a young lad. And he thought, I'll get into this alternative thing. Uh, and I, I don't want to sound like Mr. Charlie Big Potatoes, but I think I helped get him some gigs. And he um, was incredibly funny, though, and just a, a naturally incredibly funny man. In fact, probably the funniest man I've ever met in my life who could just make you laugh without saying anything. He can, he can wobble his eyebrows and make you laugh. He's just extraordinary. And then he got onto the, um, what was the alternative comedy circuit then, and I gigged with him a lot because we were signed to the same agency. Um, so we went out on the road when he was still a circuit comic. Yeah, he wasn't Lee Evans, the superstar. And I even had to follow him sometimes. And he was like, he'd go on in the middle and I'd have to go on after him. And that was hard work, I can tell you. And then in 90, was it two? 93, won the Perrier. 
Yes. And then right. he just went stellar. But uh, to show what a lovely bloke he was, he just said, oh, Rich, well, come and support me on my tours. Because we were sort of matey. And he just and that thing where he said, oh, if I make it, I'll take you with me. And I thought, yeah, right. Uh, but he did. So I think I did three UK tours, 97, 98, 99. Which, but his tours were like 80 gigs long. I mean, he was the hardest working man you've ever met in your life. And he would do an hour and 20 and have a standing ovation every night. I mean, seriously, they didn't just get up and stand up just so they could go home. It's because he, he worked the audience so hard. And I'd be doing 20 minutes and I was exhausted. But he would do an hour and 20 for like 70, I think it was 75 to 80 nights a tour. And then we did the big ones, as you say, for the videos, They were because they were shit yes. vids. Yeah, of course. And then, uh, yeah, so I, I, I ended up doing hundreds of shows with him, but it was a great run for me. I was, I was absolutely delighted. He was actually the first ever act that I saw live in the flesh wow. at Nottingham. And on the subject of the multiple gigs, yeah. I was so annoyed with him because I'd purposely like, got up early in the morning, got onto the site for the Nottingham Arena, yeah. got my tickets. I was absolutely, I thought, I've got no one else who's going to have tickets that I know. Yeah. And then bang, 10 dates come on after that. I was thinking, oh my goodness, wow. like, how is this guy doing it? But the way he'd layer up a joke, that's something that I'd really, it was like yes. a, almost like a boxer, like he'd start with a jab, yes. then work to the body and then finish with a haymaker and he, I was done by the break. That's a great analogy, Chris, that's lovely. Yeah, well he worked so hard on material, more so than any other comic, in as far as he would do the shows, he'd done, right, he's done the hour and 20, and as you know, when he comes off stage, he would be covered in sweat because he'd worked so hard in his suit, it was like shaking the hand of a dog who just got out the river, because he was just, you know, you kept away from him, because if you turn around quickly, you'd just get this whole sway of sweat oh, over you and, and he had a big rack of suits by the way that he had to send to the cleaners one by one because we were doing seven nights a week and he just and he couldn't wear that one till the like seven nights further away till it dried out and then wear another one and then he'd finish his show sorry the point being and then start writing again so him and his writer would would write everything down take note well his writer would take notes in the wings while Lee was on stage then Lee would meet him afterwards they'd have a you know a, a bit of supper or something and then they'd start writing again we'd be in the bar having a beer thinking we were you know uh, doing ever so well and Lee would be up in his room with his writer just like reaming out new stuff and it was amazing the way that in a tour he added an extra 45 to 60 minutes of material on tour which by the end of it had worked its way in and I've never seen anyone do that in quite the same way. Most people write the material for the tour, try it out beforehand, and that's it. You know, you stick with that and then do your 60, 70 nights. Lee actually just improved it. And then just, and by the end of it, had like twice as much stuff. So he was, yeah, a really hard working guy. I could definitely notice the difference um, because I went to see, I think it was Michael McIntyre the year after, perhaps. I think it was maybe Lee's second tour. Might yeah. have gone XL, then big or something, maybe mm -hmm. the other way around. But McIntyre's act seems very much more scripted mm -hmm. than Lee Evans did, and I can see now why. Mm -hmm. You know, with all the extra material coming in, that's just yes. beyond genius. Yes, and as you know, when all the acts started out on the circuit, they wrote their own stuff, and then when they did their first one-hour show, and it, if it went stellar, that went onto a video or a DVD, and that would be it or a tour for the tour. They couldn't use that stuff again. And a couple of them tried to and, and fell foul of that. And audiences were no, they did the same last time. And they, you know, we're talking about big ticketed arena shows. So they'd get writers in from that point onwards, which I, I, I think is perfectly acceptable. A lot of people said, oh, you meant to write your own jokes. But you know, they'd already written maybe two hours of stuff. There may be two separate hours before they did that. But I, um, I think with some acts, it's almost noticeable. And, and as you've pointed out, you can tell when it's not all 
you feel from them. So it's it's like writers saying, here, say this, this, and this, and they go, yeah, I'll do that. Whereas some acts just seem naturally to... So I think, again, with somebody like Lee, it had to be completely what he wanted to do. I don't think he's ever gone out there and just done a joke unless he thought, no, I'll do it my way. It's got to be, you know, the Lee Evans school of comedy. Whereas some comics, I mean, Michael's incredibly, you know, talented in what he does. I think if you just gave him a joke, he could tell you it and make you laugh. But, um, yeah, a, a lot of the comics changed their style slightly as well with the TV success, simply because they've run out of material. <coughs> Sorry, running out of voice. <laughs> awesome. Are you still in touch with Lee in his retirement? Um, sort of, yes. He's actually gone very quiet. And I, I checked up on him the other week. Um, How about he's knackered, isn't he? I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> all of them shows. Who couldn't be? Um, I'm still in touch with Jack D regularly because I used to do big tours with Jack as well. So, in fact, I went from the Jack D tours to the Lee Evans tours. And before I supported Jack D, Lee Evans supported Jack D. And apparently that was a hell of a tour. That was, apparently that was like rock and roll, right? They were just ripping up, you know, houses all around the country. And Lee then became big enough to do his own shows. And I supported Jack. And then when uh, Jack stopped touring for a bit, I then went to support Lee. So support Act to the Stars, that's me, Chris. That's my life. Um, but yes, Jack D, I asked him and he said, yeah, Lee's taking it easy. But I think because he's such a funny and comedically minded guy, I'm sure he'll come back and do something. He's sort of done a bit of acting, I believe, mm. in the theatres. I think that's maybe where his Yeah, and he did the films be. as well, do you remember? Because yes. that's when I was on tour with him. I Mouse remember Hunter. Mouse Hunter came out. We went to the premiere. That was lovely. Yes, so he's definitely got many strings. He's very musical as well, do you know that? He's, he, he can he compose is. and stuff. He's yeah. great. Amazing. He's, yeah, no, very he's talented. too talented, that man. <laughs> um, speaking of travelling as well, um, you've done festivals I believe is it in Montreal and Phoenix yes I did the um, Montreal just for laughs festival uh, oh that was a while back now Chris oh, blimey oh getting best part of 20 years probably um, but that was amazing because it's an invite only thing so you can't just rock up there it's like Edinburgh whatever you can go and do your own show but for the just for laughs you've got to be invited and I think there was like six or seven British comics so I was really honored to be it's like playing for England oh yeah um, yes yeah, so that was a fantastic experience and the Phoenix one there wasn't Phoenix Arizona if oh, was I was really thinking I'd, I'd love to make it sound a bit more glamorous the Phoenix club <laughs> it was yeah, yeah it was the Phoenix club in uh, Snibston just outside of Leicester I don't know if you know that place no I'm teasing you it was in <laughs> it actually wasn't far it was I think just outside Stratford-on-Avon and it was a festival from the uh, mid sort of 93, 94, 95. And I know I was on just before Eddie Izzard. He was the top act. But it was a cracking festival. Uh, and it was like a music one as well. But um, I don't think they run that one anymore. So, yeah, but yeah, I did a lot of festivals. And they're hard, I feel, because you're playing in great big tents. Uh, people standing, not sitting. And often they just walk in and out of the tent because they're on, at a festival. They're not having to pay separately. And sometimes it's, if there's a major band about to start they'll just walk out and see them and you'll you know you start with 400 and you end up with 12 or vice versa so festivals are a real old um, you know rigmarole to play as a comedian so um i mean on the subject of festivals as well a lot of comedians are playing glastonbury i believe and sort of festivals like that yes when you get a, an audience like what i was going to allude to for that one was um if you get an audience in an intimate room would you say it beats the bigger stage or the other way around? Oh, yeah. And I mean, even, you know, because we've mentioned the Jack D. Lee Evans tours, when they used to play the mega theatres, like Hammersmith Apollo, I did four times for Jack D. And it was just like three and a half thousand people. It's enormous. You feel no sense of intimacy with the audience at all. You're just kind of on the stage, whacking out your jokes, hoping for a you know, response. Whereas when you're in a little club, you know, the front row is, you know, 
two feet away sometimes. And Jack and Lee would say the same thing, and they said, oh, we miss all that, and we, you know, we loved it at the Glee Club or the Comedy Store, because you're so close to the audience. And even if it's a big 400-seater like the store or somewhere, you know, you've got that immediate response of a laughter. It hits you like a big wave. And when you're in the massive arenas, I mean, I think by the time Lee finished, his gigs were so big, they had, like, huge screens of him either side, like at the O2, and people were actually watching a screen of him. Yes, yeah. I remember, yeah, and, I was, and, yeah. And great, because, you know, the, the ticket sales must be fantastic. But at the same time, I know most comics, any day of the week, would say, oh, just put me in, you know, a much smaller room, because that's where it all feels so much better. You sort of lose that intimacy a little bit in the, the arenas. Yeah. So that's the thing that I really found about uh, club comedy, was when my first ever gig that I went to was in the Criterion, which unfortunately got shut down in Leicester for mm. not paying it's electricity bills oh, okay um, slightly <laughs> random well the PA kept cutting out and now we know why so great <laughs> <laughs> um, but I it was off by the utility company that's, that's great. it yeah pull the plug literally yeah. um, but uh, the acts on there it was literally a stage a mm. microphone a few chairs there were only about 20 people in there but the noise coming off the audience because of the acoustics of the room as well yeah if you haven't been to club comedy, it's just something you've got to experience. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. In fact, I did a show last night in a little place, and I'm doing one tonight in another little place. I'm only in the little places now, Chris. But what still impresses me and amazes me is that people will pay good money to turn up to a comedy club when they don't really know any of the acts. I don't flatter myself. They've come to see me. They think, well, I'll pay me money, and there's going to be three or four acts on. I'll give it a go. Because I don't think that happens anywhere else in the entertainment world. I don't think we would say there's a, there's a music venue at the road, Chris. There's four bands on. Let's go. Because you say, well, who? Who are we going to go and watch? Whereas people will do that for comedy, and nine times out of ten, I'm hoping, will leave the club going, that was a really good night. Even if they didn't like all the comics, they'd probably like one or two of them. And it's still a very healthy scene, the comedy scene, all around the UK, because people will think, well, I'm rocking up to the comedy club. It's a relatively cheap night out, and you can have a drink. And, you, and, and sometimes I think people are, are pleasantly surprised. It's like there's that giveaway when people come up to the end of the show and go, you were really funny, mate. And you know what they're really saying is, we didn't think you were going to be really funny. We didn't really rate this. We just rocked up thinking, we'll give it a go. And they walk out of there thinking, and it's a wonderful thing people say, oh, we're coming back. You know, I'm telling me mates. And I think that's kept the whole thing fresh and alive. And for everybody, it's like, even when established acts turn up in clubs, there's that lovely, whoa, look, you know, somebody off the telly. And they're just as happy to see them as they are for new acts. And people say, give this guy a go. It's their first try or something. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lovely, healthy scene still. Definitely. Just finally, you've got um, a, uh, well, you did a radio show back in 2015 called, uh, was it TV Theme Tunes? Oh, yeah, the lost art of the TV. That's thing. the yeah. one, yeah. Um, an amazing listen. I'll leave the link in the description box below for the YouTube Thanks, uh, listeners. Um, what inspired that? Um, well, before I became a comic, as I mentioned, I was a musician. And before the Panic Brothers, which was just like a little country rockabilly, witty song, two guitar, two voice act, I actually wanted to write proper like you know tv themes and film themes i wasn't good enough to be honest with you and then many many years later 25 years later um i thought i'm, I'm gonna give that a go so um I, I play tv themes just for fun anyway in me car i've got like the sweeney theme and the persuaders theme and the avengers just for fun i love to hear them and I, so i thought what i'll do is i'll try and write some themes in the style of like an homage not i was trying not rip them off you know so um, I came out with an album called The Theme That Never Was and it was like telly shows that never came out in the 60s and 70s and I wrote little stories that never happened or films that never got released and it got really good reviews and it got picked up and the 
BBC picked it up and just said, oh, this is really interesting. Would you like to make a TV uh, radio show on Radio 4 about your thing? And I said, I'd absolutely love to. And then just before we made the show, the producer got back to me and said, do you know what? We're not allowed to because it's like promoting your CD. It's like, you know, promoting a, a product and it's BBC. And they said, we're really sorry, but however, would you like to make a show about TV themes in general? Because it's something you really like, and we'll stick some of yours in as well. And I went, that's perfect. So it was just a labour of love, really. And it's like the best, like when you do radio, as you know, Chris, when you're actually doing a subject you like, and you involve other people in it you like, it's just, you know, I didn't even want to be paid for it. I did get paid. But it's just that thing where it was such a pleasure... And then you meet TV composers and they tell you about, you know, how they come up with their little ideas and whatever. So, yeah, and there's another one called um, The Sequel That Never Was, about films that never got made um, into a sequel, like The Italian Job. I was always um, obsessed with the idea of that bus on the end of the cliff. Yes, and I yeah. thought, well, what would have happened? So I wrote an album of, of sequels to films that never had one. And that got well-reviewed. And the BBC, in fact, that, I think that was the thing that tipped the balance of getting those shows, um, have said, uh, you know, we'll, we'll do another show sometime. So if they do, I'd be delighted. Thank you. That's uh, any of the BBC, if you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> yes. sign Richard up for another He's still available. Yeah. <laughs> um, I suppose the final question, I, I feel like we need to do a, like a part two to this podcast because there's so much more oh, I think we could you, go into. It's been fantastic. But uh, I ask every comedian this on the podcast, what is your favourite service station? My favourite service station? Oh, now you, you've, oh, you've put me right on the spot. It could well, be Canada or this country. Oh, it'd definitely be in this country um, because I'm at them all the time. There's that one in Oxford that's got the, um, the fountains outside. That's very posh. And there's that one on the M6 toll, I'm, I'm being Charlie Big Potatoes now, which I don't often use because obviously you have to pay money. And I think it's called Norton Canes. And it's like Selfridges in there. It's unbelievable. In fact, when you walk in, you sort of wipe your feet because you think it's so posh in here. I've straightened my tie up and everything. That one. Um, and there's a really fantastic um, 60s-looking one just outside of Lancaster. And it's called, is it Charnock Richard? And, it, and it's like got a tower that looks like the BT Tower in London. Yes. And it's like, it's like Space Age. So it's like being in Space 1999. There's a TV show. Um, but basically, any of them that aren't too crowded, too noisy, and they can actually sell you coffee under about a fiver, I'd be happy to go to. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Richard Martin. Thank it's been you, an absolute Chris. Thanks pleasure for having me. talking to you. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. You can also do it on iTunes. Uh, like, share, subscribe, um, as I've said before. And I'll see you on the next podcast. Thank you very much.